Chapter 4, Pulmonology. Topic 5, Respiratory Infections. First up, we have acute bronchitis. This condition is commonly caused by a viral upper respiratory tract infection or upper respiratory tract infection organisms like S. pneumoniae, H. influenzae, and Moraxella. Patients with acute bronchitis often present with a productive cough, mild hemoptysis, dyspnea, chest discomfort, wheezes, and crackles. Diagnosis is typically clinical, with a chest x-ray used to rule out pneumonia. These x-rays may show mild congestive changes, but no opacities or consolidation. Management is primarily supportive and includes non-prescription analgesics and cough suppressants. Bronchodilators may also be used. Antibiotics are generally not recommended unless in special circumstances such as pertussis, where macrolides are the first line of treatment. As an aside, chronic bronchitis is a type of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, that's characterized by a long-term productive cough. It's typically the result of prolonged exposure to irritants such as cigarette smoke or air pollution that damage the lungs and airways. On the other hand, acute bronchitis is an infectious condition that occurs when the bronchi become inflamed. Treatment for acute exacerbations of chronic bronchitis is often similar to that of acute bronchitis. Moving on to the common cold. This is most commonly caused by a viral infection, with rhinovirus being the most common culprit. There are, however, other less common causes like coronavirus, adenovirus, parainfluenza, RSV, and Coxsackia virus. Symptoms of the common cold include a low-grade fever, non-productive cough, rhinorrhea, headache, sore throat, and a history of sick contacts. Diagnosis is clinical and management is supportive involving rehydration, analgesics, cough suppressants, decongestants, and antihistamines. Prevention is key and proper hand hygiene is essential. Complications can include superimposed bacterial infection. Next, we will discuss influenza. Risk factors for this condition include close contacts, lack of vaccination, primary lung disease, the elderly, young children, and poor hand hygiene. Symptoms often include a sudden onset fever, headache, and myalgias. Diagnosis can be clinical but may also be confirmed with influenza PCR. Management depends on the duration of symptoms upon presentation. If it's less than 48 hours after onset, neuraminidase inhibitors like oseltamivir and zanamivir can be used. If it's more than 48 hours after onset, symptomatic management is recommended. Complications can include superimposed bacterial infection, myositis, rhabdomyolysis, myocarditis, pericarditis, encephalitis, and transverse myelitis. Next is pneumonia. Pneumonia is defined as an infection of the lung parenchyma that extends into the alveoli. Its most common cause is streptococcus pneumonia, although other bacterial causes are also commonly associated with specific exposures. There are also several viral causes such as influenza, RSV, parainfluenza, adenovirus, HSV, and paramyxovirus. Now how would one recognize pneumonia? Signs and symptoms can include a sudden onset fever, a productive cough, pleuritic chest pain, and dyspnea on exertion. Additionally, you might hear crackles on auscultation or notice dullness to percussion. Diagnosis is based on these clinical signs and symptoms, coupled with chest imaging. Chest x-rays can show consolidation, infiltration, or opacity, and a chest CT scan provides a more detailed visualization of lung anatomy, particularly the lower lobes. After diagnosis, management typically involves antibiotics, with the CURB-65 triage criteria used to determine whether treatment should be inpatient or outpatient. Each letter in CURB-65 stands for a specific sign or symptom, and each one earns the patient one point. Let's break it down. The C stands for confusion. 
This is any new onset confusion or disorientation not attributable to another cause. U stands for uremia, which is specifically a blood urea nitrogen, or BUN, level of greater than 19 milligrams per deciliter. R stands for respiratory rate, specifically a rate of greater than 30 breaths per minute. The B stands for blood pressure, specifically a systolic blood pressure of less than 90 millimeters mercury, or a diastolic blood pressure of less than 60 millimeters mercury. And finally, the 65 stands for age over 65 years. Once we've assessed each of these criteria and assigned points, we then use the total score to guide treatment decisions. A score of two or more is generally an indication for inpatient treatment, as it suggests a higher risk of severe disease. Outpatient treatment is typically for younger, healthier patients with no comorbidities, no recent antibiotic use, and stable vital signs. The typical prescription is macrolides such as azithromycin or clarithromycin, or a respiratory fluoroquinolone like levofloxacin. Inpatient treatment, on the other hand, is usually recommended for older patients with multiple comorbidities, unstable vital signs, and a high risk of outpatient treatment failure. The typical prescription is an anti-pneumococcal beta-lactam plus a macrolide or doxycycline. In cases of hospital-acquired pneumonia, it may be necessary to cover for multidrug-resistant organisms like MRSA and or pseudomonas. In the ICU, patients with respiratory distress requiring mechanical ventilation or those in septic shock may require similar treatment to inpatient care, but with coverage for multidrug-resistant organisms such as MRSA and or pseudomonas. Complications of pneumonia can include parapneumonic effusion and empyema. However, preventative measures like the influenza vaccine and the pneumococcal vaccine can significantly reduce the risk of infection. We will now elaborate on additional information regarding diagnostics and treatment for inpatient pneumonia. There are several key tests to consider. Blood cultures can be useful to identify the causative organism. A sputum culture can also be conducted, especially if the patient has a productive cough. Urinary antigen tests for S. pneumoniae and Legionella are often used, as these organisms are common causes of community-acquired pneumonia. PCR testing can also be done to detect viral causes or atypical bacteria. It's also important to assess the patient's oxygenation status. This can be done using pulse oximetry, which provides a non-invasive estimate of oxygen saturation. In more severe cases, an arterial blood gas analysis may be performed to provide a more accurate measure of oxygenation, as well as information on the patient's acid-base balance. The choice of antibiotic therapy should cover both typical and atypical organisms that cause pneumonia. Ceftriaxone is often used as it covers typical organisms, including S. pneumoniae and H. influenzae. To cover atypical organisms such as mycoplasma, Klebsiella, and Legionella, Azithromycin is often added to the regimen. For outpatient treatment of pneumonia in cases of major comorbidities, recent antibiotic use, or for patients residing in areas of high-resistance S. pneumoniae, a combination of beta-lactam and macrolide can also be used. It's also important to note that there are other anti-pneumococcal beta-lactams available, such as cefotaxime, ceftazidime, ertapenem, and ampicillin sulbactam. For treatment of pseudomonal infections, other effective antibiotics include imipenem, meropenem, cefepime, and ceftazidime. When prescribing these medications, it's important to monitor for potential side effects. For example, fluoroquinolones and macrolides can prolong the QT interval, which can increase the risk of serious arrhythmias. And finally, while chest x-rays are an important part of diagnosing pneumonia, it's important to note that the patterns observed, whether it's lobar pneumonia, bronchopneumonia, 
or interstitial pneumonia do not help distinguish between the different infectious etiologies, a comprehensive clinical evaluation alongside laboratory tests can often provide a more accurate diagnosis. Next, we're going to delve into various organisms associated with pneumonia, their specific associations, and the key treatment options. First up, we have mycoplasma. This is associated with interstitial walking pneumonia and breakouts in crowded areas such as dormitories and prisons. It can cause IgM cold agglutinins leading to hemolytic anemia, bullous myringitis, and erythema multiform. The primary treatment options include macrolides, fluoroquinolones, and doxycycline. Next, we have Klebsiella, which is often found in alcoholics, diabetics, and those with aspiration pneumonia. It's known for its characteristic current jelly sputum. The first-line treatment for Klebsiella pneumonia is typically a carbapenem, which covers for extended-spectrum beta-lactamase organisms, moving on to Pseudomonas. This is typically associated with cystic fibrosis and ecthyma gangrenosum. Treatment options are numerous and include piperacillin tazobactam, ticarcillin clavulinate, carbapenems, ceftazidime, cefepime, aminoglycosides, astrionum, and fluoroquinolones. Next up is Legionella. Legionella is often associated with air conditioners, showers, water aerosols, GI and CNS symptoms, and hyponatremia. It is detected with a urinary antigen test. Treatment options include macrolides and fluoroquinolones. Pneumocystis pneumonia is often associated with HIV patients with a CD4 count less than 200. It presents with bilateral interstitial pneumonia, increased LDH, and an increased AA gradient. The treatment of choice is TMP-SMX. Chlamydia cetaci, often associated with parrots, is typically treated with tetracyclines and macrolides. Chlamydia pneumonia, associated with hoarseness, is also treated with tetracyclines and macrolides. H. influenzae, often associated with COPD exacerbations, is typically treated with amoxicillin clavulinate. Coxiella burnettii, associated with cattle and sheep amniotic fluid and culture-negative endocarditis, is typically treated with doxycycline. Finally, we have nocardia. This is typically associated with immunocompromised patients, including those with HIV, organ transplant recipients, and those on chronic glucocorticoid use. It's known for its branching filaments, mimicking TB, and it can spread to the skin and CNS. Treatment typically involves TMP-SMX, with carbapenems added for CNS spread. As an aside, we will discuss hospital-acquired pneumonia. Hospital-acquired pneumonia, also known as nosocomial pneumonia, is defined as the development of pneumonia after 48 hours of hospitalization. It's important to note that the patients at risk for hospital-acquired pneumonia are typically those who are already critically ill or have undergone certain procedures like intubation. Recent changes to guidelines no longer include patients coming from community settings such as nursing homes, dialysis centers, and other outpatient clinics as being at high risk for multidrug-resistant pathogens as previously thought. This is a significant change, as it was once standard to treat these patients as if they had hospital-acquired pneumonia. Therefore, the decision to treat these patients as hospital-acquired versus community-acquired should be made on a case-by-case -case basis, taking into account the patient's overall health status, risk factors, and the local prevalence of multidrug-resistant organisms. Now let's move on to a specific type of pneumonia, aspiration pneumonia. This condition usually occurs due to the inhalation of food, stomach acid, or saliva into the lungs. Certain groups are at higher risk, such as individuals who frequently vomit, alcoholics, those with an altered mental status, the elderly, the debilitated, 
people with epilepsy, those with dysphagia or an ineffective gag reflex, individuals with Zenker's diverticulum, GERD, and those who have been intubated or have feeding tubes. Symptoms of aspiration pneumonia include cough, fever, malaise, foul-smelling sputum, pleuritic chest pain, respiratory distress, and wheezing. It's typically diagnosed via chest x-ray, which will show infiltrates involving the right lower lobe if the patient is sitting up, or the posterior segment of the right upper lobe if the patient is supine. It's important to note that these infiltrates will take a few days to develop. Other signs can include air fluid levels and cavitation, bronchial anatomy favors objects, foreign bodies or contents, or oropharyngeal secretions, Entering the right lung as the right main stem bronchus has a greater vertical orientation compared to the left main stem bronchus. Management typically involves antibiotics such as ampicillin sulbactam, amoxicillin clavulinate, or clindamycin to prevent the development of a lung abscess, which is a potential complication of aspiration pneumonia. In contrast to aspiration pneumonia, aspiration pneumonitis results from the aspiration of gastric contents, leading to lung injury. This condition manifests rapidly with the development of respiratory distress and cyanosis. A chest x-ray will show infiltrates involving one or multiple lobes within two hours. The good news is that clinical recovery usually occurs within 24 to 36 hours, with radiographic resolution within four to seven days. Management primarily involves respiratory support, and antimicrobials are not indicated once the diagnosis has been confirmed. Our next topic is a well-known infectious disease, tuberculosis, caused by Mycobacterium tuberculosis. Certain groups are more susceptible to contracting tuberculosis, such as recent immigrants from Africa or Asia, those with immunodeficiency, residents in prisons or shelters, intravenous drug abusers, alcohol abusers, and individuals with silicosis. The signs and symptoms of tuberculosis vary depending on the stage of the disease. In primary TB, patients are mostly asymptomatic, although mild respiratory symptoms like cough and low-grade fever that self-resolve within a week may be present. In secondary TB, a decrease in immune function allows previously walled-off mycobacterium to spread throughout the lungs and extrapulmonary, leading to miliary TB. The symptoms here include fever, weight loss, night sweats, chronic productive cough, and hemoptysis. Diagnosis of tuberculosis relies on several tests and observations, including a chest x-ray, PPD skin test, interferon gamma release assay, acid fast bacilli smear, sputum culture, and nucleic acid amplification test. Treatment involves multi-drug regimens to prevent the development of drug resistance. This typically includes a combination of rifampin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol, also known as ripe therapy. Rifampin works as an RNA polymerase inhibitor. The main side effects of rifampin are the production of red-orange body fluids and the induction of cytochrome P450. Do keep in mind the latter can lead to drug interactions as it can increase the breakdown of other drugs. Isoniazid inhibits an enzyme involved in the synthesis of mycolic acid, which is a component of the mycobacterium cell wall. This drug's side effects can include hepatotoxicity, drug-induced lupus, and peripheral neuropathy. It's worth noting that peripheral neuropathy can be prevented with concurrent vitamin B6 administration. Moving on to pyrazinamide. The mechanism of action for pyrazinamide isn't well understood. However, it's essential to be aware that this drug can cause hyperuricemia, which can increase the risk of gout exacerbation. Finally, we discuss ethambutol. Ethambutol works as an arabinosyl transfer assay inhibitor, which decreases carbohydrate polymerization of the cell wall. 
The primary side effect to note with ethambutol is optic neuropathy, which can result in red-green color blindness. Complications of tuberculosis can include extrapulmonary TB, meningitis, intracerebral tuberculoma, miliary TB, POTS disease, pericarditis, pleural effusion, adrenal insufficiency, and fibrosing mediastinitis. The PPD skin test is a common method for screening for tuberculosis. The test measures the skin's response to an injection of a small amount of purified protein derivative, which is a component of the tuberculosis bacteria. The result is determined by the size of the area of induration, or hardening, not redness, that develops at the site of the injection. But it's not just the size of the induration that matters. Risk factors also play a crucial role in determining whether a PPD result is positive. There are three main categories that help us interpret the PPD result. The first category is an induration of more than 5 millimeters, which is considered positive in individuals with known exposure to TB, those with HIV, organ transplant recipients, and those with radiographic findings consistent with previously healed TB. An induration of more than 10 millimeters is considered positive in certain high-risk populations. These include recent immigrants from TB endemic areas, IV drug abusers, those in high-risk environments like hospitals and prisons, children under four years old, and those at high risk for reactivation, such as long-term corticosteroid users and individuals with conditions like leukemia, end-stage renal disease, diabetes, and malabsorption syndromes. Finally, an induration of more than 15 millimeters is considered positive in low-risk populations. These are healthy individuals with no specific risk factors. Next, we'll talk about a few factoids regarding TB. Firstly, let's talk about the BCG vaccine. The Bacille Calmet-Guerin, or BCG, vaccine has been used for many years to prevent tuberculosis. Notably, it significantly decreases the incidence of invasive tuberculosis. This is especially important in parts of the world where TB is highly prevalent. Next, we have streptomycin. While first-line treatments for TB typically include medications like rifampin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol, streptomycin is often used as a second-line treatment for resistant cases of TB. It's an aminoglycoside antibiotic that inhibits protein synthesis in the bacteria, effectively stopping its growth. Finally, let's discuss why TB prefers the lung apex. The apex of the lungs have a high oxygen tension due to increased ventilation perfusion, or VQ mismatch. This environment is particularly conducive for the growth of Mycobacterium tuberculosis, the bacteria that cause TB. Next, we'll discuss PCP pneumonia. Risk factors for PCP include HIV with a CD4, count less than 200, organ transplant recipients, those with T-cell immunodeficiency, long-term glucocorticoid use, and severe malnutrition. In terms of symptoms, PCP often presents with a dry cough, fever, hypoxia, and respiratory symptoms like tachypnea and dyspnea. Diagnosing PCP involves a few key tests. A chest x-ray often shows diffuse bilateral ground glass opacities. An elevated LDH level is highly sensitive for PCP. Bronchoalveolar lavage with a microscopic identification of PCP, usually by a methenamine silver stain, can also be done. Additionally, a sputum stain can be used. Moving on to treatment, the first-line treatment and prophylaxis for PCP is TMP-SMX. In cases of sulfa allergy or TMP-SMX toxicity, alternatives can be used. These include IV pentamidine, clindamycin plus primaquine, TMP plus Dapsone, or for prophylaxis, Dapsone or Atovaquone. As an aside, be sure to check for G6PD deficiency before prescribing Dapsone or Primaquine. 
which can trigger hemolysis in people with G6PD deficiency. Corticosteroids can improve mortality in severe cases of hypoxia. Indications for corticosteroid use include oxygen saturation less than 92% on pulse oximetry, PaO2 less than 70 millimeters mercury, or an arterial alveolar gradient greater than 35 millimeters mercury. Highly active antiretroviral therapy is a crucial part of management for patients with HIV who develop PCP to increase their CD4 count above 200. Now let's talk about systemic mycoses. These are fungal infections that are most often asymptomatic. However, if patients do become symptomatic, they can present with cough, fever, dyspnea, weight loss, malaise, and myalgias. A chest x-ray will show calcified nodules, granuloma, or cavitation. Systemic mycoses can be differentiated based on extrapulmonary findings and geographical location. Most cases are self-resolving without the host being aware that they have inhaled and cleared the fungal infection. Treatment for the systemic mycoses is typically with itraconazole or fluconazole, with amphotericin B used for disseminated disease. First up, we have histoplasmosis. This fungus is primarily found in the Ohio and Mississippi River Valley and the Midwest, and is often associated with bat or bird droppings and decayed wood. Extrapulmonary manifestations can include erythema nodosum, erythema multiform, fibrosing mediastinitis, arthralgias, pancytopenia due to bone marrow infiltration, and hepatosplenomegaly due to involvement of the reticuloendothelial system. Diagnostics typically involve a urine or serum antigen test and the presence of narrow-based budding yeasts. Next, we have blastomycosis, which is found in the east and central U.S., including Wisconsin and the Great Lakes region. It's associated with inhalation of spores and contact with soil or rotting wood. Extrapulmonary manifestations can include ulcerated skin lesions, which often mimic squamous cell carcinoma, lytic bone lesions, and genitourinary conditions like prostatitis and epididymal orchitis. Diagnostics typically involve a culture and the identification of broad-based buds on microscopy. Moving on to coccidiomycosis, also known as San Joaquin fever or valley fever. This fungus is found in the southwest USA and is associated with inhalation of spores. Extrapulmonary manifestations can include erythema nodosum or multiform, arthralgias, skin and bone lesions, and a maculopapular rash. In terms of diagnostics, a sputum culture and PCR can be used. Lastly, we have paracoccidiomycosis, primarily found in Central and South America and associated with inhalation of spores. The primary extrapulmonary manifestation is the dissemination to the reticuloendothelial system, which can lead to hepatosplenomegaly and anemia. Diagnosis typically involves a culture. Now let's delve into aspergillosis. The risk factors for this fungal infection include being immunocompromised, having a pre-existing lung cavity, often after a TB infection, having chronic granulomatous disease, sarcoidosis, histoplasmosis, bronchial cysts, bronchiectasis, and lung neoplasia. There are several associated syndromes, including allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, pulmonary aspergilloma, invasive aspergillosis, and mycotoxicosis. The signs and symptoms can vary, but typically pulmonary aspergilloma is mostly asymptomatic, while invasive aspergillosis presents with a worsening fever, hemoptysis, and pleuritic chest pain due to the erosion of lung parunchymo. For diagnosing aspergillosis, a chest x-ray or CT scan can show bilateral pulmonary infiltrates, mediastinal adenopathy, ground glass opacity, or a lung abscess. In the case of an aspergilloma, a solid halo-like mass lesion with a crescent sign may be seen. An elevated beta-D glucan level, culture, and biopsy 
can also be used for diagnosis. The crescent sign occurs when the fungus ball can change position within the larger cavity. When the patient changes position, such as from lying down to standing up, the ball shifts within the cavity. This shifting can result in air fluid levels on imaging studies, creating the distinctive crescent shape that gives the sign its name. Treatment involves antifungal medications such as voriconazole or itraconazole or echinocandins for severe cases of invasive aspergillosis. If an aspergilloma is present, surgical resection might be necessary. Complications can include the hematogenous spread to the CNS and pulmonary vasculature invasion leading to thrombosis and infarct.